I think that the real reason why uh, musical theatre tends to be thought of very often as just light-hearted entertainment and not having any social or political comment is because, by and large, especially in Britain, uh, from the 1920s onwards, you got musical comedies, as they were then called, which were actually uh, bits of fluff, which were which were intended purely to entertain. Even Rodgers and Hammerstein, though they tackle difficult issues, like South Pacific, for example, tackles race issues of race, um, they're still written in a form that the average person in the street would, would find unthreatening. Of course, uh, the musical theatre has a long history. The first piece of drama that, that uh, uh, historians would regard as a musical was The Beggar's Opera. It's very much uh, a play interrupted at a large number of points by short songs. And the short songs were based on popular tunes of the day and the melodies of the popular tunes were set to new lyrics to make what was very often uh, uh, emotional or lyrical uh, uh, content rather pointed. So the whole show actually was um, a coherent satire on a corrupt government. The interesting thing was it was the longest running show uh, in the 18th century of all plays uh, and, and other types of uh, theatre entertainment that when they produced a sequel called Polly using one of the characters from, from the Beggar's Opera, uh, that sequel was banned and it led to the establishment of the Lord Chamberlain's office where you had to send every single script to be licensed for performance. Uh, before any public performance could occur. So the beginning of modern stage censorship started in Britain because of a musical. Then in the 19th century, I think the first show that people would today regard as a musical, though they were called comic operas at the time, were obviously Gilbert and Sullivan. So all the Gilbert and Sullivan shows, I mean, today we, we, we laugh mildly and, we, and we, we chuckle because there's a lot of burlesque elements involved. But in, the, in, their, in their day, they were genuinely social satires. So they were commenting on society and people got it and people understood what the targets were. So there is a tradition that runs all the way through English musical theatre. Now, Gilbert and Sullivan were followed by uh, the popularity of something that was, for the first time, called musical comedy, as we still sometimes call certain musicals today. They were, in some ways, interestingly, typically, this is a typical English uh, phenomenon, in that they were, of course, about class, because people called them the Earl with the Girl uh, musical, because usually the, the Count or the Earl or the, or the, or the, or the Duke uh, ended up marrying one of the showgirls, one of the, the, or the shop girls. They were often about showgirls or shop girls. And so that it was about something which was a little bit um, unexpected or even might have been frowned upon by conservative people in that the working class young woman uh, married the upper class duke. In those days, you really, uh, you'd go to a musical for light entertainment in the 20s and 30s. And the British tended to... Um, divide, really, plays or plays with music that were serious from musical comedies. Now, I think that started to change quite radically in the late 50s in Britain because the the drama of the Royal Court and Stratford East, Theatre Royal Stratford East, the, the angry young drama as it was, started to introduce a new tone and a new attitude towards theatre. And a, a number of musicals, one very interesting one, um, was Expresso Bongo, which is quite a vicious uh, attack on the corruption uh, within the music business at the time. And um, it's nothing like the film. The film was very watered down and it had Cliff Richard uh, appearing in it. But the, the musical had Paul Schofield, most important serious actor at that time, Shakespearean actor. 
And so it was obviously regarded as a serious piece of theatre. And then John Osborne started using music and songs in his plays like The Entertainer, which one could think of as a, as a musical, because it's based on a, a music hall act. Musicals started becoming more and more fraught with political and social content. The most famous example, I, I think, is Oh, What a Lovely War, because that, that is a musical, and Joan Littlewood was very aware of how important it was to use music, uh, especially to entertain her own audiences. She wanted to really appeal to working-class audiences as well as anyone else. But she would she deliberately had an aesthetic which combined song and, and, and drama in, in her, even in the uh, uh, dramatic uh, uh, plays that she produced. But she set out, I think, to do a shock, to use the songs of the First World War in a shocking context in Oh, What a Lovely War to startle people into the horror of what the First World War actually was. And although jolly in tone very dark in insignificance and meaning. But I'm not sure how pe whether people would have regarded that as a popular musical at the time. It was seen, I think, because it was Joan Littlewood, as a piece of serious theatre, which was a musical. Uh, we didn't tend, I think, to, to, to make the musical uh, into a separate category so much in Britain, I think, when, when it was dealing with serious issue, issues, people just accepted that it was some form of theatre. By the time you get to the 60s, it's two musicals, really, that, 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 that startled Broadway. One was Cabaret in 1966, where Hal Prince, the producer, who was very much responsible for bringing the whole team together to write it, had wanted to write a show that was very much about the race riots in, in America at the time. And he saw the anti-Semitism in the, the run-up to the Nazi uh, government just before 1933. He saw that as a direct analogy in America for how prejudiced people were uh, against black people in, in, in America at the time. So he used this as a kind of way of looking at, uh, you know, using the anti-Semitism of the, of the pre-Second World War as a way of actually trying to provoke Americans to look at their own uh, potential racism. But the show that in terms of its directness and in terms of its appeal to a completely new generation became political in a different way. I mean, in itself, it was a political gesture. Um, that show, of course, was Hair. Uh, uh, and um, because I think the form of Hair, because it sort of ditched all the conventions of the popular song of the 20s and 30s and 50s, all the way up to the 50s, which had been the staple of the American musical and musical comedy, um, it saw that this was old-fashioned, in a way, to a young audience, and it saw that there were people who were in their late teens and 20s who were not being addressed in the Broadway musical at all. And so it's a sort of scuzzy, you know, fuzzy, all over the place. It doesn't bother with all the principles of the well-made book that, 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 that were supposed to be to apply in the, uh, in, in the Broadway musical. And it just tackles the Vietnam War. It tackles uh, uh, issues of racism. It, it, it tackles uh, uh, homosexuality, deals with homosexuality in an honest way. Um, sex before marriage, uh, uh, you know, which in those days was still an issue in 1967. Um, uh, and it puts them all out there in a very open way. And, you know, the, the symbolic nude scene, which wouldn't be shocking in any way uh, uh, today, but, that, but was at that time because it had never been done in a commercial theatre before. There had never been a, a nude scene of that, of that kind. It, it was, again, a political gesture. It was saying, well, we can do this, and, and what, so shall come and arrest us if you want to. Uh, um, but this is our generation. This is what we feel. We're being open, we're being honest, we're being direct. 
this is a naked gesture uh, 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 of, of political and social rebellion. And it was a, it was a lifestyle rebellion as well as a, a genuine political rebellion against uh, the, the establishment in America, against the Vietnam War particularly. In a way, it changed the attitude towards what musicals can be. And I think it changed the, it, it created the possibility that young people could be spoken to in their own idiom, in their own musical language. Uh, 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 so you could use pop, rock, a mixture of any kind of, of song form to appeal to people on their own terms. I suppose Jesus Christ Superstar is the next show after Hair that captured the imagination of young people. People didn't, I think, see it as a musical even. It was a, it was a, a rock album at the time. But I think the appeal was that it took some of the uh, heavy metal uh, 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 rock music of the, of the mid-60s, some of the kind of aggressive and, and powerful, almost symphonic writing that you find in, in, in groups like The Who at the time, and it put that, it actually put that against a symphony orchestra, so that for the original recording, as I as I understand it, there was a full-scale symphony orchestra with a group of rock musicians at the centre. So the sound that was produced was actually an extension of what was happening to 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 rock, as rock was becoming more and more and more sophisticated in its use of instrumentation. It really appealed to a generation as pop music at the time. So I don't think anybody of that generation, anywhere between you know, the age of 12 and the age of 22, listened to it as though uh, it was a musical. They listened to it like their own rock music. So it was just one among a lot of other uh, uh, kinds of pop music that they listened to. It wasn't performed uh, as a show until it had been done in a number of concerts. It was, it was hugely successful in concerts around America first. And then I think some of the, co the concerts started touring Britain. Then they decided, there was actually an American production first by Jim, uh, Jim Sharman. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Jim Sharman uh, uh, produced this wildly psychedelic, over-the-top uh, production. By all accounts, it wasn't a great production, but it was way over-the-top and must have been quite appealing to young people. That wasn't the big success, though. I think that the album was a much bigger success and people were fighting to try and, you know, produce, you know, pirate concert versions of, of uh, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. And then the British production uh, in the early 70s with Paul Nicholas, I think that ran for about seven or eight years. So that then became something you had to see in the way perhaps nowadays tourists come to Les Mis. But unlike Les Mis, that had been a pop phenomenon first and the music was very much late 60s music I suppose by the time it closed in 1977 the music was getting a bit old-fashioned but it, it was a, a sort of rock and pop phenomenon and I think it gave people the, the sense young people oh we can go to the West End and see a show which is our music it's not a Broadway musical which to people to young people in the 70s a Broadway musical would have sounded like 50s swing music or 40s swing music because the vocabulary of the traditional American musical had remained stuck in the 40s and 50s swing era. After Jesus Christ Superstar, and it was only because of the huge success of Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, Rice and Lloyd Webber began to be regarded as a serious uh, uh, 
musical theatre writing team. And so the, the, the show that came after that for them was Evita. Although it was released as a concept album first, I think they always had in mind that this was going to be uh, more like a traditional musical. There's no doubt that Tim Rice certainly was very interested in the politics of Eva Perón and that the musical, it took... The, something of the format of uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, because after all, Evita was in her own way a kind of star, so it was a continuation of the examination of pop celebrity, uh, and asked why was she such a star in Argentina at the time, and why was she so much more famous than her husband, who was the president? And it looked at that very sceptically, unlike Superstar, which accepts the, the Christ figure as a holy, holy figure. Uh, Evita is acting. She's lying. She's an actress all the way through the show. And she's manipulating the sympathies of the audience. So it's looking very critically at the damage that that kind of celebrity can do politically and the corruption that may be built into to that kind of career. The first production by Hal Prince with Elaine Page emphasised very strongly the political content. An audience of intelligent young people who's gone through the kind of uh, excesses, the celebrity excesses of uh, glam rock and, and glitter bands and, and all the stuff that was happening in the, in the 70s, David Bowie. You know, there was such a, a kind of hero phenomenon with, say, a figure like Bowie. I'm not saying that Bowie became a politically corrupt uh, 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 fascist in any way at all. But, you know, that people were probably quite open to the idea of critiquing a figure like that. And of course, it, it, you know, it wasn't somebody that would be particularly controversial in Britain. I think people would have just accepted Ava Perón and her husband were fascists. And I also think that that generation, they were, they're waiting and they were waiting for more ambitious musicals which take politics and society on board seriously. I, I think that sort of audience, you know, because of what had happened in pop music and in rock music, so many of the bands did have political and other agendas that were quite more, more and more sophisticated, uh, it, you know, particularly in the early 70s. Um, I'm thinking of The Who, you know, in particular, but The Rolling Stones up to a point. Even The Beatles, you know, some of the later stuff really, uh, really has its own political point. So that audience, I think, were ready for it and probably wanted more and would have gone further, you know, would have, would have liked to see the, 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 the musical go further. I think it did change in the 80s because I think the 80s in this country is the age of Thatcherism and, uh, and in America of Reaganism. So there was a very political, politically conservative point of view, which tended, again, if there was politics in a, a musical, it tended to be covert and it tended to be reinforcing the status quo. Musicals had become famous for being these great juggernauts, what later came to be called a mega musical. They were called that for a purpose because I think they were so hugely and successfully marketed and they were so much to do with spectacle. They emphasised spectacle. And then I think with Rent in New York, you got a different kind of musical. I think Rent was a conscious attempt to go back to something like Hair, to, to write an equivalent to hair for the 90s, for the AIDS era. So it's very, very honest about AIDS. It's very honest about people with AIDS. It's very honest about homosexuality, racism, poverty, the, the bohemian life. And it, yes, in, in many, many ways, it is political. Um, it's not in any way a kind of committed uh, uh, piece of uh, sophisticated political protest, but it is in a way a protest because I think it's it's saying to older people especially, look, this is the reality that young people are living um, and they're dying 
because people are not doing enough about it. But it doesn't make the point in a preachy way. It just shows everything uh, as it does. But also, of course, it uses an idiom, which is uh, a kind of bluesy pop idiom of the 90s. It isn't using an old-fashioned Broadway idiom. Many of the songs are really very moving and became sort of anthems for the people who, who saw it a hundred times. But the songs very much state what it's about and they, they, they appeal to the heart. And I think that the people who really took that show to heart, and it did run a very long time on Broadway, not, not so much in this country, um, but those people loved it because of the songs and its protest resonated with those people because of the songs. So I think it's a very good point to make that there are certain kinds of um, uh, 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 political theatre which actually require music. After all, Brecht always used songs in his plays, even in his most developed and complicated uh, dramatic works. He, he you know, even shows he would never, we would never regard as musicals. There are always six or seven songs I I written by great composers very often. Um, and you know, one might ask oneself why. I think the obvious point for Brecht is if you want to make a direct commentary on the action, which is not necessarily part of the action, use song. You know, it's it's been done since Greek uh, drama, since the ancient Greeks. Why not do it today? And I think it it's a, it's a non-naturalistic way of commenting. So even if you had a naturalistic play and you interpolated, say, eight or nine songs you'd have a musical where the possibility was that the, the drama could be played out, so the audience could see what's happening in the world through the story, but we could understand why it was happening because of the songs. And I'm, I think that's where people are using a lot of song and musical theatre again today uh, in, in, show, in, in you know, playwrights who would probably not regard themselves as writing musicals. Since the 80s, most of the big shows actually failed. And so the teams, the, the Andrew Lloyd Webber and Cameron McIntosh teams that dominated the West End so successfully in the 80s, uh, did not really have these um, mega hits in the, in the 90s and, and, and nowadays. I think commercial producers are nervous because they just fear the amount of money they might lose. So when one asks where will the new musicals come from, I think new forms in musical theatre are only going to be uh, to, 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 to be promoted either by the subsidised theatres or by these small fringe theatres and people just getting together and trying out a new show in the way that Jerry Springer happened at the Battersea Arts Centre and doing something that seems outrageous on paper. But, of course, the National were wise enough to pick it up and, and give it a big production. And, again, I think that's a great example, in a way, of political theatre because the very the very controversy that it, that it stimulated uh, and the fact that it was done uh, on television eventually, uh, that it had to close in the West End because of all the protests and, you know, audiences stop going. I think that contributes hugely to the national debate. And it, they were, it, although it was jokey, it was it was scabrous, it was rude, you know, it, it was all deliberate. They were, the, 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 the guys who wrote it knew what they were doing, they knew why they were doing it in that way. It pushed, changed the form, if you like, it was a new approach to form of the musical. Um, uh, another anti-opera, you know, you know, uh, Jerry Springer, the opera, like the Beggar's Opera, which is not an opera. Uh, and uh, I think that, that, that that's the way forward. And I think that all the small. I think there's a great problem with the West End musical because it tends to recycle the past, and I think there is a danger because we've got so many revivals. Yes, someone will make a buck. Uh, all the jukebox shows, which are compilations of people's hits, some of them are fun, like Mamma Mia. I think it's great fun, but it's not going to push the boundaries in any way. And I think the way forward is a Mamma Mia with political content. Having said that, British musical writers tend to say, OK, we've got an idea. 
let's use the obvious means to express it. So they start thinking, what's the dramaturgy going to be based on what the idea is? And they start thinking, what kind of music appeals to my audience? Well, what kind of music appeals to me? I'm 23. Yeah, pop music. OK, so I like that style of pop music. So I'll use that style of pop music that's very common among young people today, and I'll I'll deal with my issue dramaturgy. So they're writing musicals more as a, a writer would write plays for the Royal Court, let's say. And I think that leaves the potential for the British writer to be less fettered by the tradition. And what's happened in America, younger writers are constrained because they're very often taught by people who say, these are the rules, this is what makes a good musical. And they can't see that that... Uh, pre-Sondheim format of the of the Rogers and Hammerstein mu musical was great in the 1950s because it expressed and reflected 1950s culture and attitudes is now dated. It's interesting to me that the team who've written Mission Drift, uh, that they are American because it seems to me that maybe something is happening uh, at a kind of grassroots level in, in, in America, which is very much an off-Broadway or off-off-Broadway phenomenon, which is after all where hair came from. It didn't come from Broadway. It came from off-off-Broadway writers who did this off-Broadway. Uh, and and so uh, maybe this is happening again, you know, that when people get very frustrated and the theatre doesn't seem to be uh, reflecting the social and political realities of the day, especially not Broadway musicals, then people will just get together and say, throw all the rule books out, which is what Hare did, and don't write this kind of to this kind of format at all and invent a new one.